uh, of our church and uh, just learning a bit more about their life story and also trying to glean some uh, pearls of wisdom as well as they look back uh, over their lives. I want to invite uh, Noel and Beulah McCormick uh, to come up uh, to the front and uh, they have kindly agreed uh, to be in interviews. So thank you very much. Reluctantly. <laughs> I don't know who wants it first. <laughs> now, so first of all, just tell us a little bit about uh, your background, where you grew up, and uh, how you ended up to, to come to Victoria Hall and Crescent uh, and be members here. Well, I was born at Portadown, grew up there, and went to school there. My family consisted of six, and I was the second one. There were four girls and two boys. My father and mother were both Christians, and they brought us up well and taught us well. Um, I started to work just a few days before my 15th birthday. I worked in an office, and my salary or wage was one pound and five shillings for a whole week's work. Wow. In 1949, my family moved to live in Belfast, and we all came, uh, and my parents attended Victoria Hall. I had been saved when I was 11 years old. I knew always that I was a sinner, that I was guilty, and that I needed God's forgiveness, and I asked him to save me and to come into my life. And when I was 17, I was baptized in Victoria Hall and became a member. Um, you were asking how, me... How did you meet Noel? Then? Oh, how did I meet Noel? I knew there was a... Well, I met him in Victoria Hall. We were both in the Bible class, and we both helped in a little Sunday school in Crimea Street off the Shankill Road. And our first date was going to the opening of the Broadway Hall on the Donegal Road. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. We were married in Victoria Hall in 1954, and we had four children, one girl and three boys, and now we have, as well, 18 grandchildren and 24 great-grandchildren. Wow. So that has a profound influence on our prayer life. Thank you. And where, where did you grow up, Noel? Were you from Belfast itself or further... I was born in Belfast. Born in Belfast. I married to a city girl. <laughs> <laughs> married to, sorry, a country girl. A country girl. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I, uh, the family, uh, the two brothers and a sister. Uh, my older brother, uh, Jackie, uh, joined the Royal Air Force uh, as a wireless operator. And sadly, he didn't return, and this had a profound effect on my parents, especially my mother. Mm -hmm. uh, I left school at 14 and uh, managed to get a job with Erskine Main's bookshop as a message boy, and they provided me with a great bicycle with a wicker basket in the front and I think I was the happiest boy in town. 
delivered uh, books and journals and newspapers to Queen's University and the Ulster Reform Club and so on. Uh, uh, then uh, I was promoted to the dispatch department and eventually the manager came along and invited me to uh, be a salesman in the shop. Now I had two problems. One, uh, giving change. Uh, I found that very difficult. And uh, the other was answering the telephone. I tried to avoid that as much as possible, but I got one call and, sorry? <laughs> so um, I got the call and it was a man wanting to order the Chrysanthemum Growers Handbook. Well, now I couldn't pronounce it, nor could I spell it. So that was the sort of difficulties I encountered. Well, later I got a job as a, a trainee salesman, and I'm afraid, again, I was a failed salesman. I couldn't have given the things away, <laughs> let alone sell them. But um, it's amazing just how things develop. The girl in the office took ill, and there was nobody else to do the wages and to look after the accounts. Uh, so I had to make up the wages, which I just gave them what they had last week. I didn't know anything about tax or stamps or anything else. So eventually I had to go to uh, the evening classes and studied bookkeeping and accountancy. And eventually I uh, got a professional qualification, much to my amazement. <laughs> Um, as you look back at those uh, sort of early days in, in Victoria Hall and as you uh, started going out with each other and got married, um, can you think of any sort of people that inspired you or, or bits of advice that you were given at that stage? I would say that the influence of a godly mother and a godly grandfather uh, was very strong in my life. Uh -huh and um, Sunday school teacher, Bible class leader, and also reading the life story of Hudson Taylor had a very big effect upon my life as I saw how he was committed to God, to God's people, and his love for the people of China. Well, I was saved when I was uh, 15 at the Christian uh, challenge campaign that was 1960, 1946 led by Alan Redpath and uh, that was in the assembly buildings and uh, I remember we walked from uh, the assembly buildings to the King's Hall and the King's Hall was packed and many many people were saved during that uh, that mission and uh, I was later baptized in Victoria Hall and became a member, and that is over 70 years ago. Wow. Yeah. Now, you were asking about those who had influence in our, uh, I, I must say that I had 
great influence by people like Willie Walker and uh, Jim Buckley, Mr. New, the two Mr. Elwoods and Mr. Bromley. They led uh, by their godly example and encouraged and helped us mm -hmm. in our Christian life. Um, obviously, those influences from people like that mm -hmm. were encouragement as you served here in, in yeah. church as an elder and yeah. elder's wife as well, and, and your mm -hmm. interest in uh, rallies and missionary work and uh, things like that over the years. Um, you mentioned uh, difficult times as well in life. Um, as you look back over, over times that were difficult, was there anything that encouraged you about any Bible verses or anything that sort of helped you through? Uh, those difficult times? Well, I think during difficult times, we were very much supported by family and friends and by our church family. All of you who, when Grace and Brian went home to heaven, you cared for us, you comforted us, and you were really very, very good to us. And we appreciated that so much. And one verse that one of many verses, one or two of many verses would be Isaiah 26, verses 3 and 4. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stead on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Mm -hmm. And the other one is Psalm 18, verse 30. As for God, his way is perfect. Well, one of the verses which I find encouragement from is one that was mentioned uh, by Tim this morning, Romans 8, 31. Uh, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? That's brilliant. Um, just one final thing. So as you look back, and if you were to give your own youthful self a, a, a bit of advice when you were in your early 20s? Is there anything that you would look back and, and, uh, and give yourself as, as a bit of advice? Well, I would advise myself to be much more diligent in talking about the Lord and reaching out to other people and witnessing much more every day in all of just the ordinary day-to-day things of life rather than just doing it now and again, and then it becomes maybe a bit of an ordeal. Well, recently I've been thinking about uh, the young lawyer who came to the Lord Jesus, and he was testing him, and he asked him, what is the most important commandment? And Jesus answered him and said, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. And I felt that is what I really need, mm -hmm. to love the Lord. And in loving the Lord, then this is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that's an extremely difficult part to play. Uh, loving, which is unselfish.
Well, good evening, everyone. It's very good to be with you. Uh, thank you for coming. If you're here for the first time, can I give you a particularly warm welcome? Uh, and as Tony said, we are continuing our study of, uh, this, of Paul's second letter to Timothy. The great apostle Paul is approaching his death, and he's writing to a younger man called Timothy, explaining to him what he should do once Paul has gone home to heaven. And the picture we get of the relationship between Paul and Timothy uh, is a bit like a relay race. Uh, where one runner passes the baton onto the next runner. The handover from one generation to the next one in a church is always a crucial moment. As we have just seen, we have been so blessed with an older generation who have served uh, and witnessed for God for many years. But we're also blessed in this church to have an upcoming generation who will serve and live for God long after my generation has finished its course. So this little, little, little letter has some incredibly important things to say to the millennials and the members of Generation Z in the room. So the passage we're going to study uh, is all of chapter 3 and the first five verses of chapter 4. We've arrived at the very heart of the letter. Paul's central thesis about the challenge Timothy will face is laid out in these verses. So let's read them together. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and this is the word of God. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janes and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, and my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing that from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I charge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by its his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, 
Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Now, the passage divides up naturally into three sections. In the first nine verses of chapter 3, Paul describes what we might call a world without truth. Then in the rest of chapter 3, he describes what I'm going to call the hard edges of truth. And then finally, in the first five verses of chapter 4, we learn how to stand for truth. So we have a world without truth, the hard edges of truth, and how to stand for truth. I am, as you know, recuperating from a particularly savage haircut. But I'm also currently in the middle of some dental treatment. It wasn't that bad a joke, Jason. Uh, one of my back teeth is being replaced by something called a dental implant. And the dentist who's performing this task is a very nice man. He's unfailingly courteous and friendly. But I was quite shocked when he emailed his initial report on the state of my tooth to me. There was an image from the CT scan attached, which made me look like an Egyptian mummy uh, or a minor character from CSI. But there was also a paragraph of diagnosis. And the language was cold and fairly brutal widespread decay, evidence of infection in the jaw, and so on. And I was felt a bit annoyed, uh, if I'm being honest, because in recent years I have taken dental hygiene very seriously. Now, my dentist wasn't being gratuitously rude. He was just setting out the facts of the matter in straightforward language. Now, when we read these opening words uh, in chapter 3, we might think that the Apostle Paul is just having a bit of a rant. But it's better to see this detailed description as a diagnosis a psychologically accurate record of the state of the modern mind. So let's follow his diagnosis carefully as we move through those first few verses, and you might like to keep the text in front of you. Since Christ died and rose again, we have all been living in what the Bible calls the last days. So the letter to the Hebrews begins with the statement that the God who had spoken to our ancestors through the prophets had in these last days spoken to us through his Son. So we're in the last phase of human history before Christ returns. Now, says Paul, in this last period of history, there will be seasons, there will be phases of history that will be really difficult for the church. Some generations of Christians will enjoy a reasonably tranquil existence, but every so often, wider culture will become fierce and menacing toward Christians. Timothy was about to enter into a historical phase like that. And it looks likely that the younger people here will enter into something similar. So in verses 2 to 4, Paul then gives his diagnosis of the spirit of the age. It's as if he's lifting the top off our skulls and looking down inside our brains and minds. Now that's an interesting way to describe the spirit of any age. We might expect the analysis to come in the form of the big ideas that pervade culture or political changes. But Paul begins inside the mind. And that should resonate with us. There is no doubt that something profound has happened to the Western mind in recent decades. Just think of the rise of mental health issues in society. Talk to any school teacher or doctor, and you will learn of the explosion in anxiety and self-esteem issues and a general sense of mental fragility. 
Now, I'm not drawing a straight line of sight from that observation to what Paul now says. But if we, if we now move through the 19 phrases in Paul's diagnosis, please remember my friendly dentist. Paul is just being clinical here. You may have noticed that the list begins and ends with misdirected love. It starts off, people will be lovers of self and lovers of money. And the obvious qualities which flow from self-love are, of course, pride and arrogance and contempt for others, which is what follows. But then when you look at the end of the list, we find the same misdirected love. Swollen with conceit, Paul says, people become lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So the big diagnosis here is that societies can produce generations of people who have directed their love inside themselves. Love by its nature should always be directed to the other. But here, people are lovers of themselves. And anything which can increase uh, the self's pleasure or status. So clearly some mooring with reality has been cut. Instead of love for God, for example, flowing out from the human heart into the real world, love has become like an inner reservoir, one that bathes the inner ego. So if we now look at the uh, 11 descriptions inside that circle, if you like, we see that they break down into two types. John Stott says, and who would ever disagree with him, that the phrases that we now follow, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, disrespectful, heartless, and unappeasable, that those qualities all relate to family life. He has some technical arguments that I won't go into. You see, in an ideal world, the relationship of children to their parents should be marked by obedience, uh, gratitude, uh, respect, uh, affection, reasonableness. But think what happens to family life when love stops flowing outwards and becomes an inner reservoir to bathe the self. The family bonds of filial love start to break down. So a teenager snarls hate-filled insults at his parents. Or a middle-aged woman walks away from her husband and children because she has to find herself. The second group in this inner circle all deal with how we treat our neighbours and our colleagues and our fellow citizens. Paul talks about people who are slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving the good, treacherous and reckless. That's a pretty accurate description of discourse on Twitter these days, isn't it? The same diagnosis explains what's, what's gone wrong here. If love is directed inward, then how can I love my neighbor? Self-love, says Paul, is the main reason why social bonds break down. So in verses 1 to 4, to pull pull the camera back now, Paul's main diagnosis is that self-love has destroyed the fabric of family and community. Noel uh, reminded us in his interview that the Old Testament teaches us to love God first, our neighbor second, and ourselves last. Whenever a generation of people invert that ordering, when we love self and others and then God, then we shouldn't be surprised at the breakdown of family and social bonds. Now, as we read through the rest of the passage, you may have noticed there's an even darker consequence which flows from self-love. And it's this. We end up cutting ourselves off from truth. I'm just going to pick out a few phrases to reinforce that point. In verse 7, Paul talks about some women who are never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. In the next verse, he talks of men of corrupt minds who oppose the truth. 
In chapter 4, verse 4, he speaks of people who turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And if we step back to the previous chapter, chapter 2, he's already dealt with people who have swerved away from the truth. Now here's the thing. Truth is a statement that corresponds to reality. That's all truth is. So when I say this lectern is made of wood and the walls of this church are made of stone, I am telling the truth because my descriptions correspond with reality. The reality of a wooden lectern and stone walls. And when you think of truth like that, you can almost visualize it a bit like a a tether between you and reality. But some societies, including our own, have turned their back on truth. They create language games that allow people to cut themselves off from reality. Paul has already called out those language games. He's called them a babble, a form of talk that can spread like gangrene. Now, a good example of a language game is the invention of the idea of gender identity. It is a false construct which allows me to deny the biological reality of my body. According to queer theory today, I could be a heterosexual man or I could be a lesbian woman. I decide my own truth in the inner sanctum of my heart. Let's take an older example. The myth of evolution, which ignores the reality that nature bears the hallmarks of an intelligent designer. Like all language games, it is a coherent story, but it is not tethered to reality. So that is Paul's diagnosis of the spirit of the age that Timothy would have to live in. In essence, it's a description of the thing we call postmodernism today. So Timothy's challenges are very close to the challenges uh, of those of you who are millennial or a bit younger. Love has been misdirected inwards. Self-love has led to a breakdown in familial and social bonds. And at an even darker level, it has undermined our belief in objective truth. Now in verses 5 through 9, we come across a really surprising thing. The spirit of the age which Paul has just described, obviously it's completely anti-Christian. But Paul goes on to argue that some people dress up the spirit of the age in religious garments. They create a religion that fits easily with the postmodern mind. Now, these people don't just invent ideas. They actually act a bit like evangelists, selling their myths like door-to-door salesmen. A good example of this phenomenon comes from the Presbyterian Church of the United States. Let me quickly say that the churches I'm talking about have nothing in common with the sound evangelical churches uh, we love here in Ireland. But PCUSA have embraced liberalism as far as it could possibly go. In the name of progress, they have jettisoned all orthodox teaching on gender and sexuality. They interpret the resurrection of the Lord Jesus in a purely spiritual manner, whatever that means. And they don't regard the Bible as authoritative or even true. But they say they appreciate the beauty of the God concept encountered in the density of its rhetoric. Do with that what you will. So on the surface, you might see ceremonies that look Christian. But as Paul says here, it's a form of godliness that denies its power. Once you stop arguing that Christianity is true, your church is doomed. All liberal churches die. That is a simple fact. Abandon the claim that Christianity is true, and you'll end up with two elderly lesbians in cassocks lighting candles in an empty church. Now, that process takes years, of course. So in the short term, some people find a cloaking of the spirit of the age in religious garb. They find that to be quite attractive. Some of them even get a following for a while. 
Just think of men like Rob Bell or Steve Chalk. And certain types of people within Christendom are attracted to these sorts of men. Paul points out two types. First, he says, gullible and guilt-ridden women can follow novel ideas the way they follow fashion. Now, the it's new, so it must be good approach is fine when it comes to washing machines or smartphones, but it's a terrible philosophy to apply to truth. One plus one equals three is a very novel idea, but the old idea that one plus one equals two is better because it happens to be true. Paul uses a rather contemptuous phrase here to describe people like that. He calls them little women, the dedicated followers of fashion who love novelty and bright, shiny new things. They are nothing like the substantial women of God Paul honors elsewhere, women who study the scriptures in order to find truth. In verse 8, the apostle is even more dismissive of men who are attracted to a religious version of the spirit of the age. He alludes to these magicians in Pharaoh's court, men called, this is way back in the book of Exodus, uh, men called Janes and Jambres. Jambres uh, what a brilliant name for a pop group. But anyway, they're mentioned in one of the Targums as the chief magicians in Pharaoh's court. You may recall from your Sunday school days how Moses uh, tries to persuade Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go, to release them from slavery. And to convince him uh, about the truth of what is real in life, God sends nine plagues and one judgment on Egypt. And those plagues are best understood as arguments, evidence which God shows Pharaoh to convince him to accept Moses' words as true. Now the interesting thing is that the magicians in the early days could match some of Moses' signs. But eventually they give up and they tell Pharaoh, no, this is the finger of God. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying that this postmodernism in religious clothes, this cloak over the spirit of the age, will attract people for a while. But eventually it will run into the sand. He rather mockingly uses the term progress in verse 9, which of course is the mantra of the religious liberal. You know the people who say we must progress from the primitive backwater to biblical authority and progress into today's society. Well, says Paul, these people will progress, but not very far. Soon the sheer folly of their approach will be evident to all. Now, the second part of Paul's argument is found in verses 10 through 17 of chapter 3. Remember, in the first part, Paul was painting this picture of a world without truth and a religion without truth. Here I suggest he describes what we might call the hard edges of truth. And let me explain what I mean by that strange phrase. A few weeks ago I was climbing into bed and I remembered I had left the garage door open. So I walked quickly along my hallway in the dark, forgetting that I'd left a pile of books on the floor. And my big toes encounter with reality was painful. Books are hard. They have sharp corners. And in a contest between my soft tissue and the corner of an ESV hardback Bible, the book won. Truth can be uncomfortable when we encounter it. Its contours are angular. It has hard edges that sometimes don't feel very comfortable. I remember once designing a solution uh, to an IT, uh, an IT problem. This was in the days when I had a real job. Uh, and I was rather pleased with it. But an old, old engineer, he must have been at least 30, took me aside and explained that it simply wouldn't work. And that was a painful moment for me. But I couldn't argue with the truth of the thing because it couldn't work and it didn't. Sometimes we butt up against the hard angularity of truth and it hurts. Now in verses 10 through 13, Paul urges Timothy not to listen to the siren voices of postmodernism, but instead to follow the truth that he, Timothy, has seen in Paul's life. 
the incarnation of Christian doctrine in the life of his mentor. And it's not a path to be taken by those who want an easy life. People who stand for truth in a society like ours will inevitably face some form of persecution. Paul himself at Lystra had been stoned and left for dead on one occasion. So let me take a minute just to apply that, those verses very directly. If my generation in this church has to hand on the baton to the young, younger generation, what sort of example are we providing for them today? It's very easy for people of my age to sit, well, it is in general to sit, that's all we do, but it's very easy for people of my age to sit in our comfortable evangelical bastions. We enjoy Christian fellowship while we wait for the return of Christ. Or perhaps we can explain the gospel uh, to unbelievers in language that makes us feel warm and comfortable, but which means nothing to them. But remember how tough life might well become for the people here who are 30 or under, having to live, having to raise children in a much more menacing context. So a question to people of my age is this. Have we shown courage Have we been good role models for younger people in showing them how to engage with the changing culture? Preaching to the choir might be nice for the choir, but it does nothing for unbelievers. In verses 14 through 17, Paul comes to the climax of his point, perhaps the climax of the entire letter. He's been talking a great deal about truth so far, hasn't he? But what is the source of truth in our lives? Well, says Paul, it is the scriptures, the word of God. A few verses earlier, we got the astonishing moment when Paul puts himself in the same category as Moses. He self-consciously placed his gospel on the same footing as Moses' writings. And speaking of both the Old Testament canon and the almost completed New Testament canon, he says this, all scripture is God-breathed and profitable. Now, the postmodernists would love verse 16 to continue to say this, all scripture is profitable for us to inspire us encourage us and make us feel good about ourselves. Well, it doesn't say that, does it? Hopefully now you'll understand all my earlier talk about angular contours. Paul says, Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Ouch, we might say in response. If you thought hard for a week, I doubt if you could come up with a more countercultural set of words than those. We live in a culture which is profoundly anti-authoritarian. No one, not even God, can thwart my journey into the self-love of autonomy. Now remember he's talking to a Christian believer here. And he is giving us the secret for how the people of God can live in a world without truth. As a Christian community, he says, our key characteristic is that we are seen to live under the authority of the Word of God. Non-Christians should be able to see how the Bible reproves us, how it teaches us, how it corrects us and trains us. Now, please don't think I'm about to launch into some grumpy scold. Paul is being much more grown up than that. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that we are living in a culture where people are destroying themselves by cutting themselves off from truth. The idolatry of self-love is like a vortex that is destroying mental health, destroying families, destroying social relationships. There is a clear and present danger that Christian families might get sucked into that vortex. And the only thing that will protect your family is the authority of the scriptures over your life. 
If you want, remember the context here is all about raising children. If you want your children to avoid the cultural vortex of self-love, the best thing you can do is let them see Scripture reprove you, correct you, and train you. Above all, let them see Scripture teach you. Verse 16 begins with the word all. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. That includes the story of Isaac's life in Genesis. It includes every chapter in Isaiah, not just 640 and 53. It includes all of Hebrews, 2 Thessalonians. Now, I know not everybody finds it easy to study formidable books like Judges on their own. So this church places a great emphasis on systematic, expositional teaching of God's Word. All of it as part of a balanced diet. So come prepared to learn. Don't listen on behalf of others. Listen for yourself. Put yourself under the authority of the Word. Remember that your children are watching you all the time. If they don't see a desire to learn in you, how will they develop such a desire for themselves? And if they don't see us live in obedience to the Scriptures, why should we expect them to obey them? Young people need to see that sort of obedience in Scripture incarnated in the lives of older people. That was Paul's whole argument back in verse 10. And it is a vital perspective to maintain when it comes to the teaching of children. And that's Paul's focus, as I say, in verses 14 and 15. We need to teach children the stories from the Bible. But we need to teach them that those stories from the Bible are true. And we also need the teachers to live lives in obedience to scriptural truth. And it's only then that the upcoming generation can develop minds that are humble and respectful and grateful and loyal, full of goodness and light. That's the way to understand what Paul is doing here. He isn't some negative, critical scolder using the word of God to harangue the people of God. Paul is explaining how we can escape the vortex of self-love that is sucking millions of our friends and our neighbors into its darkness. And only the gravitational pull of the scriptures has the ability to pull us out of that particular hell. So in part one, Paul described a world without truth. In part two, he taught us as Christians to accept the hard edges of truth, to allow the Bible to teach us and reprove us and correct us and train us. But to close, as we consider part three, we will learn how to stand for truth in a world without truth. How to stand in the public square. And we find part three of Paul's argument in the first five verses of chapter four. Paul is a realist. He tells Timothy in pretty stark terms that there will come a time when many people will simply not endure sound teaching. They won't be prepared to learn. They, won't be pre- they aren't prepared to have their conception of God deepened or to allow the scriptures to interrogate their daily lives. So they will slip away to listen to so-called teachers who inflate their damaged egos, who tell them comforting myths about self-actualization. With God, you can be whatever you want to be, and all that other sort of nonsense. So Paul isn't being naive here. He's warning Timothy that he's not going to be very popular, at least not in the short term. And so he begins by lifting the eyes of his young charge away from the turmoil of daily life. It's so easy for any Christian minister to get lost when they only ever think about the next year or so. Keep your eyes on the horizon, Timothy, Paul says. 
Always see your work in the context of Christ's return when he will be the judge over all of us. If ever there was a perspective to help a frightened Christian stay loyal, it is this one. The picture of that day when the skies will part and Christ will return. In the language of Revelation, one day the one called faithful and true will ride forth. And all the lies concocted over the centuries that have arisen from within the sinful human heart will be shown up to be false. What a wonderful privilege a Bible teacher has. We get to stand for truth. We aren't peddling some myth that conveniently fits into the spirit of the age. We stand as heralds of that which is ultimately real. So in that light, Timothy, Paul says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season to reprove and rebuke and exhort. Sometimes in other churches I'm introduced as someone who is going to bring us a word. And I have to fight the urge not to snort in derision. My job is to teach the word. Then we have the threefold charge. The ESV translated as reprove, rebuke and exhort. The commentators generally think it's better to think about that as to convince, rebuke and exhort. The New English Bible puts it like this. The Bible teacher must use argument, reproof and appeal. And that shows the classification of the three approaches needed in Bible teaching and preaching. Intellectual, moral and emotional. Some people need to be convinced by arguments. Others have fallen into sin and need to be faced with the Bible's diagnosis of the human condition. And others again are haunted by fears and need to be encouraged. That is the job of the evangelist. He must stand in the public square, says Paul, showing enormous patience and argue for the Christian worldview. He must confront people with the Bible's analysis of sin. He must appeal to people haunted by all sorts of fears and by using all of Scripture. He then has the privilege of explaining God's salvation in its fullest sense, not just what we're saved from, but what we're saved to. So we're done. Paul has described a world without truth. He then taught how the people of God should accept and live under the hard edges of truth. And finally, he taught us how to stand for truth in the public square. The evangelist should deal with intellectual, moral, and emotional issues in his audience, using all of Scripture to patiently teach salvation in its fullest sense. I'd like to close, before we sing a final hymn, I'd like to close uh, on a personal note. This church is going to have to hold its nerve in the decades that lie ahead. If the Lord doesn't return in Northern Ireland, we will probably see thousands of young evangelicals fall away or fall into postmodernism with a religious cloak. It's my prayer that this place will never swerve away from the claim that Christianity is true. The Lord has blessed us with a good number of young men with spiritual gift in teaching. And all of us must encourage them, as Paul encouraged Timothy, to teach all of Scripture so that the people of God are trained in righteousness. It's only by doing that that your children and their children will be saved from a world without a truth. So let's all of us take that long view of the future when we are encouraging our young Bible teachers. Thank you for your patience.